0: In progress. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's great to have you all, whether you're in person or whether you're online. It is great to see you here. Once again, thank you, Dr. Maxi, for sponsoring Kabbalan Coffee in, in loving memory of your mom. And indeed, may all the learning be for a blessing and elevation, and to uh, perpetuate your mom's memory and to continue bring her light into the world. So today, we're going to talk about what the greatest challenge to human beings, but the greatest challenge is to human beings. Now, that's a lofty, it's a lofty uh, target because there are many things that are challenging. Human beings are rife with challenges. There are many, many things that can challenge us and or take us down. But I believe that there's, listen, the, the way I, the way I've perceived things, the way I've seen things, you know, in my, uh, in my time here so far I'm walking this beautiful earth, is that there's one thing, if we could kind of like point the finger at one thing that specifically can bring people down, I think I would say, you know what, before I tell you what I think, what do you think? What's the, what's the one vice that brings people down? Donna, what do you think? Money, Money? Good. That's a good, that's a good vice. When I say good vice, that's a, that's a good, challenging vice. Centrine, what do you think? The one vice that brings people down. Hate, Hate? okay. Okay, what else? Online crew, what do you guys think? Arrogance. Arrogance. Sex. Sex? okay. Yeah.
1: Fear fear of success, uh, uh, inappropriate self-esteem, inaccurate self-esteem.
0: Okay, good. Good. Tony's saying envy. Excellent.
1: Hmm.
0: I'm going to say that a lot of these boil down To what Dr. Maxey said, which is arrogance. I think a lot of it comes down to that. It's not the only thing. Listen, it's not the only thing. But a lot of it comes down to arrogance. It comes down to ego. It comes down to, I mean, think about it. Money, right? It's like, this is what I want. Hate, divisiveness is about me versus you. I'm against you. You don't serve my interests, so I don't like you, right? It's a lot of it boils down to ego and arrogance. Now... Is it always arrogance? Is it always ego? One could argue no. I personally would argue yes. By the way, just personally, I can't speak on behalf of any, you know, I can't say for sure it's, you know, 100% and you can measure it scientifically. But my my sense, my feeling is that it always comes down to the ego, to the arrogance. And I, I do think it's supported in Jewish texts, although it's not the only problem. But I think it's one of, the, one of the major problems. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Cain and Abel. Why does Cain kill Abel? First murder in history. Why does Cain kill his brother? Simple. Because his brother's offering was accepted and his wasn't. Jealousy. jealousy. But what is, what is the root of jealousy? It's really ego. It's a bruised ego, right? What is jealousy? Jealousy is, you got it. I didn't. That makes me upset. It's insecurity, right? insecurity, yeah. It's like it's not feeling good. It's, it's you... You did better than I did. I don't like how that makes me feel. It's, it's all ego-driven. It's all ego-driven. So what does Hashem say? What does God say to Cain? Cain.
1: Could be part, part valid, though. If, if uh, there's a fear of not being, um, like, if, if God rejects you, then are you going to die, you know, from lack of uh, support? You know, are you going to be excommunicated? Right.
0: Okay, you... good, good. And you might say it's valid. I'm no. going to say it's still ego. Good. Yes, it might be valid, yes it might be valid, but it still goes back to ego. If we didn't have an ego, would it bother us? In other words, imagine this. Imagine, again, it's, it's, it's a very vulnerable uh, um, theory to think about, but imagine if a person didn't need to be, right? Imagine this, imagine a person didn't need to be and didn't mind not being. So a person says, so if God doesn't like my offering, so then what would I be? I don't know, maybe I would be undone. But if I'm undone, so then what's the worst that can happen? I'm back with God? Okay, why is that a bad thing? Because I don't assert my own, my own identity. You know what the most frightening thing for a soul is? The most frightening thing for a soul is seeing its own reflection. You know what I, uh, let me explain what I mean. Imagine you, one day, walking in front of a mirror, and you look into the mirror, and you don't see anything. Imagine, imagine that. That would just shake you to your core. No? It would. It would be shocking. You're like, what is happening? What is going on? This doesn't make any sense. Imagine, you, you know, every time you see yourself, you walk by a mirror, you walk by a lake, you walk by, um, I don't know, like a glass window, you walk by a car on the street, you look, you notice, okay, you see yourself. Imagine one day you're walking down the street, you look into a store window and you don't see a reflection. You're like, well, that's weird. That's weird. And then you walk by a mirror and you don't see anything. And then nothing, garnished. That would absolutely shake you to your core. Your absence would be like, what is happening? You, you, you freak out and be like, this is would be problematic. It's the opposite problem with the soul. You know how the soul originates? soul's soul is a piece of God. As a piece of God, does it have its own identity, its own face? Of course not. One day the soul walks by a mirror and sees itself and says, what's that? I'm a soul? Since when do I have my own identity? Are you with me on what I'm trying to say? As shocking as it would be for us to not have an image, can you imagine the shock of the soul when it assumes an image for the first time? When God says, you're no longer a part of me, you're now a soul that it came from me, but you're now a soul. That's shocking for the soul. And what we've done is, as human beings, we've moved from a place of total, it's not even surrender, total um, being dissolved in the, in the origin in the source, to being separated from the source and assuming our own identity, to being so concerned, the, the evolution of that is to be so concerned about our own identity that we fight to keep our identity distinct and any sense of anyone trying to take away from my identity or to diminish my identity or to, you know, uh, somehow cut into my identity to, to share my, my space with me, I get very territorial get angry, we get jealous, we get hateful, we get rageful, all of these negative, ugly emotions come out. Why? Just to protect our own identity. In other words, what I'm trying to say is we're all concerned about identity theft, but not in the cyber crime uh, uh, meaning. We're all concerned. I say we all. Of course, present company excluded. I mean, right? Obviously, that's why we're here. But uh, People are concerned about identity theft, not in the, you know, stealing the security, social security numbers and credit card numbers and having, um did I tell you what happened recently to me? I get an email, (laughs) I don't check this email account often, which is the problem, it's like a Yahoo account, like an old, like an old, like my original email account from back in the day. Anyway, I get an email one day, a few months ago, from Walmart, your order has been delivered. I'm like, never (laughs) happened, never, I don't know what you're talking about. I did not order from, all- apparently, a grill was ordered <laughs> on my credit card through my Walmart account. I guess maybe I had the credit card loaded up on the account, so someone That's just, tough. huh? Did you check the so it was delivered or or a different <laughs> <laughs> It was not nothing in, in LA. No, that would have been epic. No, it was not nothing. It was, it was delivered to like Cleveland, Georgia or something. So I called, uh, I, we got it reverted. Whatever, it's not a big deal. But it's just, um, speaking of identity theft. It could be real. Yeah. Oh, it was real fraud, yeah. Someone got a grill. Someone literally, I, yeah, someone actually netted a grill out of it. But the bank returned it. It wasn't like, okay. whatever. It all worked out at the end, and I got a new credit, new card with new numbers, and that is its own challenge, because then you've got to let everyone know, and whatever. Anyway, the point is not about me or about, about uh, this Walmart order. It's really not. The point is about identity theft, right? We're all concerned about identity theft, but we're really concerned about identity theft vis-a-vis our money, vis-a-vis our... Um, the word I'm looking for, our um, credit uh, ratings and whatever, and that's... Huh? Social security, numbers. Social security numbers and credit, whatever, all that stuff. But spiritually, right? Or it's not so spiritually. We're concerned about identity theft. We're concerned about, concerned about anyone that t- diminishes from our ego. If someone outshines us, sometimes we feel hurt. Someone stole the spotlight, someone cut in, someone you know, didn't give us the right respect. Someone, you know, said something that we didn't like, whatever it is, and we get hurt. And I'm not, these are all normal emotions. It's absolutely normal. However, Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy encourages us to take a little bit of a deeper look and to see what are the dangers of arrogance. Now the reason why I'm saying all this is because today's chapter is all about the pitfalls of arrogance. It's all about that. And it's very impactful, I think, to me, at least, it's a very impactful chapter. It follows, it follows the the line of, of conversation that we started last week about the difference between the scholar and the pure individual. The scholar being the one that's all full of you know their ideas, and the, the sincere individual that's not about you know all the stuff and all the trappings, but about you know doing something for the right reason. So we're going to follow that today with a discussion about arrogance and the pitfalls. Of arrogance. I want to share with you kind of an idea that I think crystallizes this, this, this uh, conversation. And I'll, I'll, in, I'll entitle this conversation, this specific piece of the conversation, A Tale of Two Alephs. A Tale of Two Alephs. There is an aleph. So, quick background. In the Torah, when, when you're writing a Torah scroll, so a scribe who's writing a Torah scroll has to be well it needs tremendous amount of training. It's a lot of, it's a very it's a highly specialized field. Um, a few months ago, several months ago now maybe? Chodesh El, Tishre Kislev Tevi Shvat. Yeah, almost like five months ago. We had Rabbi Asa. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Remember we had Rabbi Asa? My yeah. Birthday. Yeah. Oh it's your birthday, right. Yeah. Beautiful. So Rabbi Asa came. One of uh, he's one of very few local scribes in Atlanta lives in Toko. Rabbi Asa came and did, <coughs> did a bit of a demo of how uh, scrolls, mezuzahs, tefillin, Torahs, how scrolls are written, what makes them kosher, what, you tempt, what, what implements, writing implements are used, and then everyone got a, everyone got a chance to, to, to write on their own parchment. It was like a lot of fun. Um, the way it works for a scribe is that the letters of the Torah written Pretty much, not pretty much, they're written a standard size font based on the size of the scroll. But whatever size you're writing the letters, you stick to that size. You don't do bigger and smaller. It's not like it changes every column. It's, it's consistent with some very rare exceptions. There are few letters in Torah, relatively few letters in Torah that are written either large or small either you write them like extra large or extra small. And it's very rare and there's always a significance. So, the beginning of the book, uh, sorry? Shema? Shema. Yeah. The Shema has a large, uh, the last letter of the word Shema, shin mem ayin, the Ayin is large. And the last word of the word, the Shema Yisrael Hashem at Hashem Echad, the Echad, the Dalit of Echad is also large. The Ayin and the Dalit are large. It spells the word aid, which means witness. By saying the Shema, we're bearing testimony to Hashem's oneness. Also, the, the word, the letters and dollar backwards spells the word da, which means like that, which means to know. We should know, not just believe, but know that Hashem is one. So that's like, you know, the next level uh, of integration to our consciousness. But there's a letter that's small. Very few. One of the letters that's small is the opening word of the book of Leviticus. Now, we've talked about this um, in previous classes, certainly in daily power parasha, our, deep, our daily uh, uh, Torah study group that everyone's always invited to, of course, 12 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time, every day, um, Monday through Friday, that is. So, the, the last letter of the word Vayikra is an aleph, and it's small. Vayikra is spelled vav, yur, kuf, resh, aleph, vayikra. The last letter aleph is small. And it's noticeably small. When you look at a Torah scroll, Vayikra, the Aleph, is super small. It's like, it's tiny. What's the meaning? So the commentaries say, what what does Vayikra mean? Vayikra means, and he called. Well, who's the he and who did he call? So it's God, as the verse continues, it's God who's calling Moses. God says to Moses, Come, I want to tell you something about the sacrificial service in the tabernacle, etc. And he gives them all the details about that. God is calling Moses. Okay, so hold hold this for a moment. We have a small aleph. When God calls Moses, Vayikra, the aleph is small. Okay, something small regarding Moses. A tale of two alephs. The second aleph is the first word of the book of Divrei Hayamim. There's a book written by, I believe, who wrote Divrei Yamim Chronicles? Was it Solomon who wrote Chronicles? I don't know. Some, the book of Chronicles, one of the 24 holy books in Judaism. The book of Chronicles known as Divrei Hayamim. Divrei Hayamim literally means, Divrei means the things that happen, Hayamim, uh, uh, <laughs> throughout the days. In other words, like Chronicles, history Chronicles. So the first word of Divrei Hayyamim is Adam. It says Adam, like the first person, Adam, Adam. The, uh, the Aleph of Adam, the Aleph of Adam, beginning of the book of Chronicles, is large, large letter Aleph. The mystics tell us as follows. This is a, 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 an insight based on Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. The Kabbalists tell us, the mystics tell us that the contrast between these two Alephs is super significant and super telling. With Moses, you get a small aleph. With Adam, you get a large aleph. What's the difference? Adam, and I'm going to paraphrase the insight, Adam felt... What's a nice way of saying it? He felt full of himself. He was proud of himself. He felt... Like he was, you know, a, a great person, a large aleph. And that led, yeah, and that led to his downfall. So he felt great. He felt superior. He felt, you know, exalted. Large aleph. But that led to his downfall. Moses, on the other hand, by contrast, Moses felt Humble, small Aleph, Vayikra, small Aleph. Moses felt humble, and because of his humility, he rose to the greatest heights. A tale of two Alephs. The big Aleph for Adam leads to his downfall. Not the Aleph led to his downfall, but the arrogance, right? The hubris, the, the ego of, of Adam led to his downfall. And the small, humble Aleph of Moses, his humility led to his greatness. So here's the thing. Adam was great. Adam was the first human being. Adam was Yitzir Kapov of Shalakash Adam was the handiwork. Yitzir Kapov means the formation of the palm. In other words, God's handcrafted (laughs) I'm looking for a very lovely gift that Donna gave me this morning. This is Agatha. how do you pronounce
1: it? Agate.
0: Agate, agate. agate with gold, gold rim. with gold gilding on the edges. And gold cup. Oh wow, Dr. Maxi's got the tree. Nice tubershvat. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Look at that. So hand, handcrafted. So here's what I'm thinking: handcrafted, artisan. God created Adam, right? Because Adam was God's handiwork. It was an artisan handcrafted piece. Now, the way the Talmud describes it is that God, once Adam was created, God created the mold, so to speak, for the human being. So, though everyone's created in the divine image, but it's not like directly, it's not God's direct handiwork. Of course, God provides the soul, but mother and father, parents provide the physical substance, if you will, of the human being that will be born, God provides the soul, so God's still involved, but not, not as direct. Well, I don't know. Who am I to say not as directly? Whatever. God, Adam, let's talk about Adam. Adam was Kappa of Shalakotosh Baruch Right? I don't want to take away anyone's, uh, you know, we're all God's handiwork. But Adam was directly formed by God who took the earth, who gathered the earth and then breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. God did it A to Z. Or as they say in South Africa, A to Z, right? And maybe other places as well, right? So God, it's God's hand. So Adam was God's handiwork. So you have a large aleph. Makes sense. Of course, Adam knew who he was. Of course, he felt like, look who I am. I'm God's handiwork. There's no one ever going to be as direct in contact with God as me. Adam knew that. So how could he not feel a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance? But that led to his downfall. It might have been true. He might have been the greatest person ever to walk the face of the earth. No one could ever touch that. It's true. But you know what? By thinking about that, by getting excited about that, it led to his downfall. Straight up. The large Aleph, it says in Kabbalah, the large Aleph of Adam in Dirayam in Chronicles, the large Aleph kind of... um, foreshadows his downfall. I know Chronicles was written after the story, but the point is that large aleph is symbolic of his ego that was a little bit inflated, which led him to make a very grave mistake and sin with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Contrast this with Moses. Moses has a small aleph. I want to share with you an insight from the Hasidic masters. How could it be, asked the Hasidic masters, that Moses was humble? Moses was handpicked by God to deliver the Jewish people out of Egypt. Moses was the one with his magic wand slash staff that facilitated the plague, split the sea. Moses climbed the mountain, as we read in yesterday's Torah portion, interfacing, connecting with God face to face to receive the Torah, to deliver to the people. How could Moses have not have been arrogant? How could that have been? How could he have been humble? Listen to this insight. I don't remember which of the Chabad rabbis first said this, but I know for sure the previous rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, whose yard site we celebrated just um, a few weeks ago, I know for sure he articulates this very clearly. The previous rabbi says the following, Moses knew... That everything that he had came completely from God. His talents, his ability, his smarts, his opportunity, all the gifts and all the opportunities, everything, everything, the fact that he was breathing, everything came from God. He further believed, and to the point that he knew this to be true. He knew that he knew this. And he, he knew, okay, he believed, that had God given, the same talents, the same abilities, the same opportunity to someone else, he believed they would have done a better job than him. That's humility. Humility, and so let me just explain a a, a bit of a nuance here. Humility is not knowing, is not not knowing who you are. Humility is not pretending that you're nothing. Humility is not Moses to say, ich bin garnished, I'm nothing, I I, I never spoke with God, that's lying, that's not humility. Humility is not hiding from the truth or hiding from your calling. Humility is simply this, not taking credit for the gifts that God has given you, to believe that to, know that, to know the truth that God has given you the abilities and the opportunity, that God gave you the calling, you didn't give it to yourself. And to further believe that if God had given it to someone else, could be they would do a better job. Good, 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 good. So is asking a good question. Where does confidence come in?
1: Vis-a-vis if you're saying someone
0: else. Good. My understanding is like this. The confidence would be that I believe that if God had given it to someone else, they very well might have done a better job. But God did give it to me. God clearly chose me for a reason. I don't know. By the way, Moses was trying to wiggle out of this the whole time. You know this, right? I mean, you know this, right? God, Moses the whole time was like, God, can you please choose someone else? Like, please, like, do me a favor. Find someone else, right? Not me. Someone who doesn't rhyme with uh, noses. You know what I mean? Like, find someone else, please. Mm-hmm. He, Moshe was not, he was not Moses. He was not, like, he was not running for this job. He felt if God would have chosen someone else, they would have done better. But you know what? At some point, he looked at himself in the mirror and said, God chose me. So therefore, I have to do my best. So it doesn't, it's a tricky balance. You're right. It's a tricky balance. But it doesn't automatically preclude confidence. It could. it could. This, done in an unhealthy way, this could lead to self-deprecation and to... um, lack of self-confidence and there's some other good words that I'm missing. I just can't think of them right now. But it could lead to, you know, it could lead to a downward spiral. But not for Moses. Moses had a good, healthy balance where he, he knew that he wasn't a self-made man. He, <laughs> his brains, he didn't give himself the, he the smarts. Hashem gave him great the great gifts. Great. Hashem gave him the opportunity. Hashem gave... Okay, listen. Hashem gave him life. Okay, obviously. Every day, every moment, Hashem is giving us life. Without a soul, it's just a body. We know this, right? Without a soul, we are just a body, and a body without a soul is not alive. There's a, there's a name for that, right? It's not, it's not alive. It's not life. It's not life. So every moment, it's because of God. All of the abilities, the talents that we have, the smarts that we have, the, 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 the ability, what, anything that we have, whatever our qualities are, Hashem has given that to us. Sure, we developed it to some extent or another or not, but it's all—it's—it's gifts that Hashem has given us. The opportunities that we've had come from Hashem, all from God. So what, what credit are we taking for ourselves? So the fact that we utilize it, it becomes now a responsibility as opposed to a source of arrogance. In other words, this becomes framed for us. If we think along these lines as now, okay, I didn't ask for it. They don't want it necessarily. God has given it to me. Had He given it to someone else, they might have done a better job. But God didn't give it to someone else or God gave whatever He gave to someone else to someone else. But this is what God gave me. I need to be responsible to utilize the gifts that God gave me. And that's ultimately what Moses comes to the realization. He says, I have to use my, my gifts, my talents. But it's not stemming from arrogance. Look at me. Look how great I am. Adam's mistake is that he looks at himself and says... Do you know who I am? It's like, you know these stories, celebrities that get pulled over, right? They're speeding. They tell the cop, you know who I am? It's like, yeah, you're the guy with the large olive, right? That's, you're the guy with the large olive. That's, that's what the large olive is. The large olive is, do you know who I am? Do, do you know who you're talking to? If we ever catch ourselves saying that, it's a wake-up call. Whoa, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? <laughs> who, who are you? What do you mean, do you know who I am? What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean, do you know who I am? Moses would never say, do you know who I am? When Korach says to Moses, yeah, God never put you in position, God never gave you the power, you're a fraud, whatever. What does Moses do first thing? What, is Mo- what would you think Moses would say? Do you know who I am? That's what he should have said. Do you know who I am? I'm Moses. What does he say? Nothing. He falls on, falls on his face. He bows down, prostrates himself, and says, Hashem, please help. It's not do you know who I am. How dare you? Never, ever. It's not, it's not, in, it's not in the repertoire of Moses to do that. So what's my point? A tale yeah, of Rabbi, two. Rabbi, can, yeah. I just,
1: can I just push back on one thing quickly? Yeah, for sure. So, so, so I understand you say that you know Moses
0: not wanting the job is, is a form of humility. And he really didn't say, pick somebody else, right? He just said, I'm not the right guy. He says, I, I don't have the abilities, right? So so you could see that as humility, but why isn't that arrogance? Maybe he said to God, I know better than you. You could okay, say that. He said, said, you want me to do this? I'm not the guy. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, you, you, I hear you. I, uh, it's... Big, I can't, well, who's to, who are we to say to God, I can't? So I, that's right. arrogance to me. Right. Good. It's a very good question. I don't have a good answer. By the way, I will say one thing. He did say, choose someone else. He said, shlach no tishlach. He said, send the one whom you're going to send, which is not really clear as to who he meant. Some commentators say he meant Aaron. Some say he meant um, uh, Mashiach, the Messiah, the ultimate Redeemer. But so that's one clarification, but, okay. Okay, to your, but no, no, no. But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was just, 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 for the right. but your question is a good question. The only thing that I can think of, cause it is a good question. The only thing I can think of is that when he's saying, you know, I, I don't, yes, to tell God that you got it wrong, you got the wrong guy. Sounds like arrogance. But to me, it's the reaction of somebody who's not looking for fame his reaction, the reaction of someone who's not looking for a gig is like, please choose someone else. <laughs> don't... Rather... Hold on one second, Don has not it. Yeah. Well,
1: there's also, Moses communicates with God, like at the golden calf or whatever. You know, he said don't, you know, he stood up for, for the people. So there is some kind of relationship.
0: Right. That okay, Don is pointing out something interesting, that that's not the only time that Moses pushes back against God and says I disagree with your position. After the sin of the golden calf, Right, Moses says famously to God, uh, um, "Forgive the people." And if not, what are the people going to say? But like he pushes back and he says, ultimately, Mm -hmm. he says, "If not, erase me from the book that you've written, erase me from your Torah, if you don't want to forgive the Jewish people." (sighs) Right. So Donna's point is okay, good. Right. Donna's point is that God wants us to push back a little bit to show some good old fashioned chutzpah. Which could be maybe differentiated from arrogance. I, listen, I, I hear the question. it's a good question. To me, it doesn't smack as much of arrogance as it does of at least in that initial conversation by the golden, by the not the golden calf, by the burning bush. It, it, it to me, it evokes more of a, of a person who really doesn't want to be holding the microphone. He's like, "Just please, don't." It's like, "Oh, and now we call upon uh, Yankel to speak, and Yankel's like, "Nope." So maybe you say that's arrogance. Okay, I, yes, to tell God that I I I hear I I don't I don't have a really good way of articulating a response, and and I think the question is a good question, but I, but to me it's the, the overarching sentiment because you know could any human being ever fully step away from a trace of ego? No, as long as we're human, we have obviously there's some level of ego, but relative to most. The person that says, you know, you know I'd, I'd rather not shying away from it and, and, and not asserting the do you know who I am line when, when things get a little hairy with others, to me that's, that's, that's a little bit more of a smaller aleph than a larger aleph. I guess you could say he still has an aleph, but, uh, but it's a small aleph. But he has to, to be a leader. You know what it says? It says in the, it says in the Talmud, you need... One second. What is that? An eight? Or is it she, 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 she. It's... You, I forget the ratio. It says you need... Is it an eighth of an eighth? Or an 80th of an 80th? Or a 60th of a 60th? I'm not sure. I don't remember what the Talmudic... I'm trying to remember the original um, Aramaic in my, in my head, and I can't remember the original line. But it's... When it comes to... Not arrogance, but when it comes to self, ego, you do need a trace, obviously, for self-confidence to assert and to stand up and all that stuff. Um, but he was punished, right, by God when he disobeyed God with the rock. Yeah, so he hit the rock, right. So, and there was a punishment. But, of course, the Chesedic understanding is that he hit it to spare the Jewish people and not, whatever, there's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to interpret the story. So I think it's, that's going to take us, you know, th- there's a lot of different avenues behind that. But generally speaking, what I think is important here is that you have the, the large Aleph, which indicates a human being who is proud of themselves and who feels, you know, very... Um, feels a little, bit, a little bit inflated. And the point is that that could lead to a downfall, as opposed to someone who's a little bit more on the humble side, that typically leads to elevation. It says someone who's running toward positions of power, you know, don't, uh, don't choose that one. Someone who's running away from positions of power, that's the person that you want to choose. Someone who's not running toward it, that's usually the person that is... That's going to be a mensch at that job. The Rebbe? Yeah? Yeah, for a full year the Rebbe d- didn't, didn't want to take it. He was kind of forced into it. So yeah.
1: the, Torah, Moshe has a letter?
0: Vayikra. the first word of Leviticus, Vayikra. The first word of the Chumash Vayikra, the last letter of that first word, Vayikra, the Aleph, is small. Uh-huh. And then the first word of Divrei Ayam of Chronicles, Adam, the first word is Adam, large Aleph. And so, Although these two random, not random, but two disconnected words, but according to Kabbalah and Khsiris, the two words are connected. The small, a, a tale of two Alephs, a small Aleph for Moshe, a large Aleph for Adam, and we see what happened. One guy falls, and one guy is elevated. And it's all about how we view self. But, but the, one, the, the one the one point that I don't want to get, to get lost in, this, in the conversation, is what I think is the key to this, which is what the previous rabbi taught and, and, and shared. That humility, oh, Ashes Taub has a good line about this. Being, uh, humility is not, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's not thinking, it's not, it's not like I'm terrible, I'm nothing. I'm, that's lying, that's not true. Like, I've been garnished, I'm nothing, I have no talents, I have no abilities, no one likes me. That's just lack of self-esteem, that's, and that's not true. That's just, that's a, real humility is, right? What is real humility? Real humility is thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself a little less. Like, what? don't make it about yourself. What Don't be thinking obsessively about self. How do I feel? How, what does this do for me? What is ha- Think of yourself less. Think about others more. Think about purpose more, think about Hashem more, think about Torah more, think about whatever it is a value of significance of, of eternality, think of that stuff a little bit more and think about self a little bit less so here's the thing, you and I I mean we're not we're not going to slay the ego, that's not, that's not going to happen I mean it's I, not all the way not all the way um, thank you Linda um, Tony, I'm just looking at the chat now. Um, I have less ego than you, exactly. That's like the joke. <laughs> I love that. That's like the joke, funny joke that they tell about the the rabbi. It was Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. And the rabbi gets inspired by one of the prayers and he falls to the ground and says in Yiddish, Ich bin garnished, Ich bin garnished. He's rolling around the floor that translates as i'm nothing i'm nothing the chazin gets inspired the cantor gets inspired he falls to the ground and says also ich bin garnished ich bin garnished i'm nothing i'm nothing inspired by the rabbi and the cantor yankel from the back of the synagogue falls to the falls to the ground and says ich bin garnished we garnished the rabbi turns to the cantor and says look who thinks he's nothing <laughs> that guy thinks <laughs> right that's that's the point like it's as long as they were looking at me and 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 letting me you know and, and seeing how humble I am then it feels good to be humble but that's not what humble it because you're still th- we're still thinking about ourselves in that moment if we're trying to get attention it's still you know it's still about it's still about us look we're not going to be perfect with this but it's important to know kind of where where things stand and what's a healthier approach versus a, a less healthy approach So let's kind of like, Reset here a little bit, and then we're we're gonna jump inside. I I posit this is my my take based on experience, based on learning. By the way, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just my maybe it's just a slant of mine. Whenever I hear, you know, whenever news breaks, you, you you run into a story about some sort of scandal, some sort of whatever. There's usually, like, whatever is the specific avenue of the scandal, there's usually some measure of, of arrogance behind it. And not some measure. I mean, it's usually, I, I don't think I'm saying anything like that outlandish here. I think it's, it's driven by pride. Isn't that one of the seven deadly sins, pride? Yes, I, I'm pretty sure it is. Pretty sure it is. So it's a, it could be problematic. We need a, we need self confidence, but really self confidence is God confidence. That's what Moses was like. It's not that look at me, I'm the leader. It's God chose me to be the leader. I got to be a leader, right? So it's not like, it's not self confidence. It's God confidence. It's God, right? Like Michael was saying before, and and I think Michael, I think you're right. It's like at the end of the day, you know, after Moses initial pushback, and not only initially pushback for like seven days, but after that kind of ran its course, he accepted the mission, and he did whatever God wanted, and he stood up to Pharaoh, and he stood up to the people when they, you know, whatever it was, and he ultimately led them for 40 years, and the point of that is, I think the powerful point of that is that, ultimately, it becomes a God confidence, which is not ego-driven, but it's based on God choosing you for a mission. It's God says, I want you to do this, and you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right, I'm going to do it strong, not because of me, but because of because that's what I've been I've been chosen to do. Anyway, but it, but there's a you know there's um there's a fine line between you know God chose me to do it and look at me God chose me to do it. It's like such a subtle line, and it's not about anyone else judging. It's just about us knowing where we are. If there's one thing that Hasidis, Chabad Hasidic philosophy talks about nonstop, it's this theme. It's, it's the trait of Bittl. Bittl means humility. Bittl is literally translated in these texts sometimes as self-abnegation or self nullification but that's I don't know. I don't know, no one uses those words in, in real language. Who, who, whoever said, um, "Hey, let's hang out today and uh, self nullify what's self-nulification? What, what does it even mean? It just means, just think of yourself a little less. That's like the whole, it's like at the core of so much of, of Chabad philosophy is just thinking a little bit more about God and thinking a little bit less and purpose and Torah and the other person and think a little bit less about yourself. That's like so much of Hasidic philosophy distilled down into like a bumper sticker. Think, let, don't make this all about you. Make this about the purpose. And, and you and I know this, that when, when you encounter someone who's living a purpose-driven life, it's not about them. You're gravitated. That's, that's the ultimate measure of, I'm going to use a word that I don't mean in a physical way, but that's very attractive. It's a highly attractive feature when someone's not about themselves. When someone's about themselves, it's repulsive a little bit. It's like, I don't want to hang around you. You're all about yourself. Like, ugh. It's like a lot of ego there. Yeah, it's like too much ego. It's it's a little bit ugly, right? Whereas someone who's just humble and present, and they're just you know they're just open and, and listening and humble, and it's not about them, and they're they're connected with something greater, and they speak of purpose and mission. People were drawn to that. People were drawn. You know, the Rebbe started off with a million of people in, in seven seventy, Thou- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people inspired by the Rebbe over the last whatever number of years. And like, the Rebbe never talked about himself. Never talked about himself. It was all, always about a mission, a purpose, Hashem, Torah, the other. Always about the other person. And that's the ultimate attractive, that's, that's the ultimate attraction. I don't know if I'm saying the word right. It's, that's highly attractive. Someone who's not about themselves, but about something greater than self, you're drawn to that. People were drawn to Moses. It's anyway. All right.
1: I think someone uh, so many times told him you're amazing, and he said, (laughs) "What does it help?" You know. There's (laughs) a there's a
0: great video. Exactly, Sandrine. Reminds me of a great video. Yes, there was. There's even the back story. There's like a detailed story. I think it was Gordon Zacks, who was the head of, like, federation. Or UJ, United Jewish Federation. Like, the head of federations, like, either worldwide or, or North America, or whatever, like a big, big macher. So, he was speaking to the... He had a, he had a meeting with the Rebbe years prior, and they had a conversation, and the Rebbe encouraged him to do something personally, and whatever he did to whatever extent. So he comes back to the Rebbe years later like, you know, by dollars on Sunday dollars and he's getting, you know, he has a quick schmooze and he says to the Rebbe, you know, he like says to the Rebbe what he's doing lately in his work for the Jewish communities. The Rebbe says, "Um, you know, I remember last time I mentioned to you such and such about doing such and such. And he stops and says, Rebbe, you're amazing. The fact that you remember that conversation, you're amazing. So the Rebbe says, what does it benefit anybody that I'm amazing? Like, what, what benefit does it have that I'm, am, I'm amazing? Thank you, but like, who, who does that help? The Rebbe never made it about himself. That's such a funny video. Look, I, you know, maybe we can Google after the class. Rebbe, your amazing video. I'm sure it'll come up. I'm I, like, guaranteed, if you Google that right now, it'll come up, first, first, first search result, I'm sure.
1: Would rabbis,
0: you know, just debating the Torah, the interpretation, did rabbis give other pushback other interpretations? Of not, not live. Don asking when the Rebbe spoke, did anyone say, got a question? Because right. <laughs> I don't. No, 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 no. That's not how, how Fabrangans rolled. No. The Rebbe's the Fabrangans went one, di- one direction. One direction. After the Fabrangans, people had an opportunity to write in. Many times, people wrote in questions. And the Rebbe would always clarify. It was a good question. The Rebbe would always like follow up, either in writing or at the next and The Rebel would clarify. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there are no. Listen, I know I'm a car carrying Chabadnik, so obviously I'm biased. There are no holes in the Rebbe's Torah. It's like zero, nothing. No, it can't, I mean it's it's uh, very hard to describe without me getting extremely excited in this process. Like. Someone who has such clarity of thought in Torah is unprecedented. You have somebody who looks at a Rashi, a two-line Rashi, asks no less than 12 questions, absolutely eviscerates the previous understanding of Rashi, puts it back together again with such clarity that you realize you had no clue not what Rashi said, but not even what the Torah said when it's a simple verse that you read since you were five years old. Clarity of perspective is just like absolutely dumbfounding. It's like it's jaw-droppingly clear. The Rebbe's take another thing about the Rebbe that made the Rebbe, I'm going to use the word attractive, even though that's like the last word that anyone would ever use. Like, it's not, it's not, it's not even a respectful word necessarily, but I don't mean it in a physical way. I mean it in, like, in, a, in, a, in a just captivating way is, is this point, not only the humility, but the absolute clarity, which I think comes from the humility. Because when we're stuck in ourselves, things get complicated. It's like, oh, I think, I think this, I think that. We get in the way of truth because truth and ego are not necessarily compatible. When someone's not about self, it's so much easier to have this clarity. And the clarity itself is so, it's not dynamic. Dynamic's not the right word. It's so engaging. It's like, wow, that's a breath of fresh air. Someone's actually just saying the truth. It's amazing. Anyway. All right. So what's the point? The point is that ego is dangerous to... Um, that which is an understatement. Ego is dangerous. Humility is a critical piece. Ego, we've said many times, is, um, can also be read as three words, as an acronym, edging God out. When we forget about God, that's when we're typically thinking about ourselves. And what we're about to encounter in chapter 5 of Discourse 15 is one of the most powerful illustrations or declarations of the dangers of spiritual achievement. I'll say that again. This chapter is going to detail, detail, the dangers of spiritual achievement in stoking the ego and thus pulling us away from the, the direction that we're headed to in the first place. In other words, spirituality is all about getting, I mean, a major part of it is getting closer to God. But if in the process of our spiritual pursuits, we, feel, we start feeling pride and arrogance, what's happening is that pulls us away from the direction that we're heading and leads to all sorts of negative consequences, which is the theme of today's chapter. So, what I'm going to do now is, uh, yes?
1: Um, since Moses had already been the king or whatever of Midian or some type of chieftain, um, I mean, do, uh, do the commentary ever mention a lack of confidence? Because it doesn't sound like lack of confidence for a former king. It sounds like just. Pure, you know, humility and uh self abnegation.
0: Yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's a lack of confidence. I mean I may have alluded to that before, but I, I I don't know if that's accurate, if I really if I really think that. I think it's more yeah, I think it's more along the lines of what you're saying. I think it's more of a of humility, of like, you know, it's gives someone else the abilities, I'm sure they'll do a better job. Is that lack of self confidence? I don't know. Is that doubting God? I don't know. I, I I think it's it's really hard. It's real. It's, it's hard for me to like. I, I feel more. Con- huh. Like giving someone else an opportunity. Right. I, I. But I also feel like a little bit. I feel very. I mean, I, you could probably tell. I feel very tentative in really putting Moses on the couch and and like giving you my own opinion because I, I don't know anything more than than what I've than what what it says in the books. It says in the books that he was. The Torah says he's the most humble man that walked the face of the earth. The previous Rebbe says that he believed that if somebody else had the abilities, he, he didn't deny what he had, what he got. He just said if somebody else had the abilities, they would do better. Does that mean he didn't have self confidence? These are good questions. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I can. Like I feel like I'm inspected of territory, which I don't, I, I don't. I'm not qualified for that. I don't think I'm qualified for that. Um, is that me, be- lack of self-confidence? I don't know. Maybe I'm mirroring the tentativeness. It's, uh, find someone else to, to speculate on that. <laughs> I would say by the burning bush. Anyway, to be to be metacognitive here. All right, let's jump into chapter five of Discourse 15. You'll see what I mean about this. This is uh, a pretty powerful text. Okay, in the booklets, in the book, and the booklets, and online as well, it's page and. 230, one second. 232, 233 in the English. Still haven't mastered the art of printing these out with. I don't know why it's so small. So Apologies.
1: Is attributed to Ezra.
0: Oh, is it Ezra? Oh, interesting. Thank you. Is there, is there a question about it, or, it's, or we know it's him? Seems clear? Ezra. Who is Ezra? Oh, so Ezra, Sandrine looked it up. Ezra, uh, Chronicles is to Ezra. Who was Ezra? Ezra was Ezra Hasopher, Ezra the scribe, who was one of the leaders of the Jewish people at the return to, to Jerusalem by the Second Temple era. By the, at, after the 70-year exile between the First Temple and the Second Temple, the beginning of the se- Second Temple era, Ezra was one of the leaders of the people. Ezra was also, Ezra did a lot of, um, a lot of amazing things along with the men of the Great Assembly, they canonized the prayer liturgy or they canonized they um, formulated the prayer liturgy, they set that. They also established which of the twenty four which which books are gonna be the official books of, of Judaism, like the twenty four you know, books of scripture. They did a lot of uh, important and things. Who that then? Say it again. Who did that? Oh, so Ezra was one of the name Ezra. Ezra Hasoph, Ezra the scribe. He is one of the he was one of the leaders at that time, Book if not of the leader. Chronicles. That Book of Chronicles, that, that's yeah. All right, chapter 5. Here we go. So, again, keep this in mind, the themes of arrogance and humility. The Talmudist. All right, we talked about last week about the complicated relationship between the Hasidic masters and, and Talmudic scholars. They were Talmudic scholars, but they were not fond of Talmudic scholars that were all into themselves being Talmudic scholars. The Talmudist, the Talmudist, that means the Talmud scholar, you know what? I'm looking at the Hebrew. It doesn't say Talmudist. Haben Torah. Ben Torah means like uh, the Torah scholar. The Torah scholar. The Torah scholar. I'm not going to take out the word Talmudist. That's that's it's a, it's a mis- misleading translation. The ta- the the student of Torah. This Torah scholar studies Torah profoundly, examining each halacha in all its details systematically. Right. This is after all a Torah scholar. We're not talking about someone who does this. Casually, This is someone who's, who's doing this uh, for reals. Hold on, Donna, do you have a copy of this? Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me hook you up. Thank you. <laughs> My apologies. It's uh, page 232, chapter 5. So the, Tal- the, the Torah scholar studies Torah, profoundly examining each halach and all its details systematically. So this person is organized, going through Torah, going through all this stuff. Thoroughly mastering the differing opinions of the Rishonim. I'm going to explain what that is in a second. Creating original Torah thoughts with accurate reasoning. He's building up the profile of this theoretical Torah scholar. He's giving us an example of, imagine a Torah scholar. This guy is legit. This is not just, you know, uh, armchair Torah scholar. This guy is legit. He's in it to win it. He examines every halacha. Systematically, he masters the different opinions of the Rishonim. Rishonim are the early sages, the early commentaries on the Talmud. Rashi is a Rishon. One of Rishonim, plural, Rishon. Rishon means, Rishon means first. It means early. The early... Scholars of the ta- of the commentaries of the Talmud, so not the Talmudic sho- uh, not the scholars of the era of the Talmud, but the scholars a little a few hundred years later who commented, and who deciphered the Talmud. So Rashi, um, Tosafot, Ramban, um, Rashba, Ritva, Rosh, Ran, Rif. I don't know if I mentioned Rif already. Rambam, Maimonides, right? All of these are Rishonim. These are like the earliest major commentaries and clarifiers of the Talmud. If you want to study Talmud, you cannot study Talmud without Rishonim. Because what are you studying? It doesn't make any sense. The Rishonim frame the Talmud and make it, make it uh, intelligible. Okay, so he masters all the different opinions of the Rishonim because, oh, spoiler alert, the Rishonim don't agree with each other about how to learn a piece of Talmud. There's, not only does the Talmud have debate, but what the debate is about is debated. Are you with me how, how nuanced Talmud is? Ever studied? We got to do a thorough Talmud course. Once and for all, a thorough Talmud course. I'll take you into this. We'll get into a piece of Talmud. I'll show you 12 ways to understand the same dispute. That's how, that's how you sharpen the mind. Not only, you know, Hillel says this, Shammai says this. No, 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 no. That's basic. Why does Hillel say this? Why does Shammai say that? And what do they really mean? And what's it based on? And what's it, what are their ramifications? And you get dizzying layers of thought. So, anyway, so this guy, this theoretical person we're speaking of here, he's a Torah scholar. He's a Talmud scholar. Maybe that's why they wrote Talmudist, because they were shown him studying all the early opinions on the Talmud. And not only that, not only is he he a master of what others wrote, he creates original Torah thoughts with accurate reasoning. He's coming up with his own ideas, and it's not babamises. It's accurate, with accurate reasoning. This guy is on target. He's writing his own books. By the way, till this day, people write their own sfarim on Talmud, their own insights. Torah is an ever-growing field. My teachers, some of my teachers in yeshiva wrote Svarim, have written Svarim, have written books of, ta- of Talmudic analysis. Hey guys. Hello, mom. Hey. These kids are cute. All right, so here's the deal we got a little shout out from, our, from one of the Hebrew school kids. That's super cute. All right, let's continue inside. Similarly, this person, he says one, uh, okay, this person may engage in the service of the heart, that refers to prayer, service of the heart is a euphemism for prayer, with prolonged meditation during prayer on the subject of the inner Torah. This person is not only a Torah scholar, mastering the revealed parts of Torah, the Talmud and the Rishonim, and coming up with novel halakhic insights, no, this person is also praying Meditating before prayer. And what is it, what are they meditating on? The subjects of the inner Torah. You know what inner Torah is? Kabbalah. Hasidus. That he has studied. This person is, is so locked in. Studying and praying. This person is like the greatest. Uh, the problem is going to be that they know it. That's going to be the problem, right? Which we're going to get to soon. The subject penetrates deep within him. He feels the meditation. It takes him. He feels it and absorbs it through this sensitivity and absorption. Very interesting words in English. In Hebrew it works much better. Right? Absorption. Like who uses that word Like with ideas? But the sensitivity. He's open and he absorbs the idea, the subject achieves through this. The subject achieves the veikut in his mind. Dve'kot means a cleaving or attachment, a oneness in his mind, and he becomes attached to the subject. So he's just described this person who, by all accounts, would be this, like, just incredible, like, spiritual dude. Someone who's a Torah scholar studying Torah in all of its details. Rishonim, halacha, Rishonim, writing novel insights on Torah that are accurate. This guy is praying and meditating before prayer, and, and, and the, the, it penetrates his mind and his heart, and it's real to him, and he's cleaved and attached to it. Wow. This guy, this is, this is the real deal. Wow. This is very impressive, highly impressive. Now he breaks it down further. He breaks it down further, and he's about to say how... There's two levels in this. And we're talking about even the higher level. Let's let's break it down. Let's, let's see the two levels. Okay? There are two methods of speculating concepts. There's two levels of speculating, two methods. I don't know what speculating concepts means. It's a weird translation. I'm just going to say that. Speculating concepts. It says in the Hebrew, simply, There are two ways in which you can... Meditate on things. Speculating concepts? Speculate sounds like you're speculating. No? It seems a little too... S- speculative. <laughs> I don't know. There are two ways that you can think about something. Let me just make it simple. Two ways to think. One, okay, here, here's, here's option one. So one may study some specific subject, whether in the revealed Torah or the inner Torah, that means whether it's Talmud or Kabbalah, immersing himself in the study, so intellectual immersion, right? When you're immersed in that study, it's the same thing. It's identical with dvekut. That's the word we used before. Dvekut means attachment. So you're immersed and you're attached with the idea. Whether it's a piece of Gemara, a piece of Talmud, or whether it's a a Mimer, a discourse, what we're studying, whether it's uh, Chassidus, Kabbalah, your, your mind is dvok. Dvok means attached, like glued. You're 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 connected with it. For a while immersed, and there's while you're thinking about, the, while he's thinking about this thing, he's united and attached to the concept he is examining. But in this level one, this is only true for the time he is engaged in this profound study. The reason, there's two levels of dvekut. One, the first level of dvekut is that you're davuk, you're connected, but only while you're learning the subject matter. But when he has learned it well, and understood it properly, and has turned to some other subject, then the depths he had reached earlier are forgotten. Okay? That's level one, Dvekut. Level one Dvekut is, only during the time of analysis are you locked in, but when you've turned to another subject, now, let's say, you're studying Kabbalah. and while you're studying, you are so Hey, good to see you. Um, up in. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it's upstairs in the show. Yeah. Good to see you so yeah so, um, so level one is where let's say you're studying Kabbalah you're studying Chesidah so while you're studying it you're davuk you have dvekus, intellectual dvekus, which means that your mind is attached it's cleaved it's glued it's stuck it's in a good way to the subject matter but when you turn your attention later on to something else you no, you no longer experience that dvekud. you no longer experience that connection level two Next paragraph. But when a speculation is in a manner that the depth of the concept is firmly absorbed within him, that using that word absorbed again, right, absorbed, then the dvekut is like that of first insight, which means it's constantly brilliant. This is a second modality of dvekut which means it's so, the dvekut is so deep that even when, you're turn, when you turn your attention to some other topic, you still feel that connection inside. Attaining this is an arduous effort of the service of the heart of prayer in prolonged contemplation during prayer. That's what can be achieved with meditation in the context of prayer is that even what you studied before should shine as brightly as it did initially even later. I, that sense I totally botched in English, but Even at a later point in time, the the idea should be shining as brightly as it did when you first connected with it. It's hard. You know, we study something, we become attached to it. It, it, Wow, it resonates. But how long does that resonance last? That's what he's talking about. The resonance lasts as long as it lasts, but then it peters out typically. The idea of meditation is, which we're going to talk about as part of this new meditation... Oh, segue. New meditation course started this week, six-week meditation course. You want to be there... Unbelievable! We're going to talk about dveikut actually, kavana, dveikut, hitbonanut, hitbodedut. We're going to break all these things down in this in this class in this six week series on, on meditation, starting Tuesday night at eight on Zoom, Thursday at noon in person. So, the 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 meditation or prayer can accomplish that something that was true, something that was real, when you studied it, shall once again become real should once again shine as though it did when you originally... Because again, typically we get excited about something, we become inspired, but it it peters out. It like tapers off. But through prayer, through meditation, the light shines, can shine as brightly as it did initially. Okay, so what he's saying is, let's let's not lose the train of focus here. What he's describing is this, what we would call like, I don't know, Superman. Here you have somebody who's a Torah scholar and they're studying everything authentically and they're in it and they're connected with it and, you know, and, and they're coming up with new ideas and it's, and it's legit and it's amazing. And the sa- let's say the same person is praying and meditating and he's studying Kabbalah and, and deeper insights of Torah and it's shining by him and all that stuff. This guy, you would say, this theoretical guy is killing it in a good way. is firing on all cylinders. However, here's where the other shoe drops. Now, when the scholar, this same dude we're speaking, theoretical person we're, think, we're speaking of, is self-satisfied in his choice of serving God through diligent Torah study, engaging in worship. In other words, <coughs> and his choice is actually in the original, in the Hebrew here. He's self-satisfied. He's smug. He's smug. He feels good about himself. It's like, oh, I feel good. I studied all this Torah. Feel good. I prayed. I really killed it in prayer. Feel good. When he's self satisfied about the choices that he made and how he serves God through Torah study and prayer, to say nothing, let's do it in the M dash over here, to say nothing of self glorifying himself for these virtues, there's two levels. One is being self satisfied, where you feel good about yourself, which is a little bit less devious. The other one is where you are. It's Kisha misyaher. Kisha when? Misyahir. Kish Misyahir. Here it says, it translated as self glorifying. What's self glorifying? I don't know what that means, in, I don't know what that phrase means in English. Kisha Misyahir means when you actually become prideful. So level one of the arrogance spectrum is where you feel good about what you've done. It's not necessarily arrogant, you just feel good. You feel happy, you feel feel enjoyment from what you did. But level two is now you feel pride. So when you feel self-satisfied, or let alone when you feel prideful, then what happens, he digs a pit for himself and falls into it. This I wrote in the email. This is what I meant in the email when I wrote. The pit of doom. This is the pit of doom. He digs a pit for himself. That's the translation. He digs a pit that he falls into himself. He falls into his own pit that he dug. One who falls, let's continue inside. One who falls into a hole is lower than other people standing or walking on the surface of the ground. So when you dig a pit and you fall in, you're now lower than those that are walking on the sidewalk. What does that mean in the spiritual analog? One who falls, let's continue inside, one who falls into arrogance, similarly, falls into a far lower and debased state than the simple man's. Than the state of the simple man. For he seems to have lost all reason, God save us. I'm not sure about that translation of lost all reason. I have my own speculation that that might not be correct, but it d- doesn't matter. I'm going to leave it for right now. It's going to get too complicated to explain what I think it means, but let's just let's, let's leave it as is. Someone who falls into arrogance, whether prideful, not even, but even, not even pride, just even feeling smug, whether it's smug or worse, pride, it's digging a pit and falling into it. Why? Why? He says, vis-a-vis the simple, simple man is the person we spoke about last week. Simple is a, is a misnomer. Simple doesn't, is not a derogatory term. Simple is now a laudatory term. Simple means sincere. Simple. Sincere. Straightforward. Not complicated. Not arrogant. Certainly not arrogant. Authentic. Authentic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a word that actually works. Authentic. This scholar who knows it all, who prays from the depths of his heart, and he does, but has that pride or that smugness that digs a hole far, far lower and more debased than the simple, sincere, authentic individual. Let's continue inside. Not only, he, listen, there's no, I could never articulate this there's, there's nothing more that needs to be articulated than over the next several paragraphs what he says here. Not only is his Torah as not, look at this, look at these lines. Not only is his Torah as not, you know what that means? Worthless. Not only is his Torah worthless, his contemplative and prolonged prayer cannot be compared to that of the ordinary man who prays and recites psalms in a manner of, acceptance of, of, of accepting the yoke. Not only is his prayer nothing, worthless. Sorry, not only is his Torah study worthless, his prayer also is is, is is meaningless relative to the person who, liter- who prays from a sincere and non-arrogant place. And may not even understand the Hebrew. That's what he means. The ordinary man who prays and who said psalms in a manner of accepting the yoke, that means I'm doing it because that's what I should be doing. I don't understand it. I don't, it, I, I don't know what it means, therefore I don't enjoy it. I, when I say I don't enjoy it, I don't enjoy it for myself. It's not like I'm... I'm like, I'm thrilled, tickled pink about, like, all the psalms that I said and because and it, it was so meaningful to me. I have no idea what I just said. I'm doing it because I'm doing it. That's purer than this brilliant scholar, master of meditation individual who's stuck in themselves at this point. Hence, the verse says, Proverbs. That was written by King Solomon. Hence, the verse says, man's pride casts him low. In the Hebrew, it says, Gaavat, Adam, the Gaiva, the pride of man, Tash Belenu, sends him down low, casts him low. This is what he meant by the pit. You're digging a pit, and you're falling down. You're casting yourself. The pride casts the person low, oneself. It digs the pit. For pride, let's continue back inside last paragraph, 234. For pride degrades a man. The sin of arrogance. Oh, now he gets mystical. You ready for this? You want to know what the spiritual mechanics of arrogance are? Here we go. Here we go. The sin of arrogance impairs the first two letters of God's name, the Yud and the He. Why? Why does arrogance impair the first two letters of God's name? What does that even mean? He says, because Gaiva... Arrogance, the Hebrew word for pride and arrogance, gaiva, is numerically equivalent to 15. I'll I'll break it down. I wish we had like a board here I could show it to you. Gaiva, gimel, gaiva. Gimel is three, aleph, bet gimel, right? Third letter. Gaiva spelled with an aleph next. That's one, it's four. Vav is six, it's ten, right? Three plus one plus six is ten, Plus five, hey, gaiva, with a hey at the end, hey is the fifth letter. Ten plus five is 15. The numerology, the gematria of gaiva arrogance is 15. You know what else is 15? Yod and hey. Yod is 10, and hey again is five. Yod and hey. What are yod and hey? The first two letters of God's four-letter name, yod and hey. So in Kabbalah, we understand that when a person has gaiva, has pride, it actually... Blemishes, it actually um, pokes, scars, um, sullies, distorts the first two letters of God's name. Right? Guy, it, it, the sin of arrogance impairs the first two letters of God's name, and Hey. Why? Because Guy of Arrogance numerically equivalent to 15, the sum of the and He, indicating that arrogance reaches the level of Yud and He, reaches the level of the Yud and He of God's name. This can give us an idea of his fall, which is not at all in measure with his service. In other words, his fall is so much lower than his spiritual climb. Whatever he accomplished spiritually with all his stuff pales in comparison to how low he goes with the arrogance that, that layers on top of that service. Why? Why? Because his service of God, his service was through the faculties of his own chachman and of his soul. That also paralleled the two letters, the yud and the hei, Right? So a person serves God with Torah study using his chachman his bina, which is the yud and of his own soul. But here, the letters are those of man's soul. In other words, the letters that a person served God with, the, the letters, the, the faculties that a person used to serve God are his own yud and hei. Arrogance, however, impairs the two letters in God's name, which cannot be at all compared to man's intellect. In other words, when we study Torah, we're utilizing our Yodin, we're maximizing our Yodin He, Chacham bina, of our soul. But when we have arrogance, we're impeding, we're, we're, we're blemishing God's Yodin which God's Yodin He are certainly much greater than our Yodin he. He says, why? For general, the creation of the world was created only from the final of the four letters of the name, the latter He, the last letter of He of God's name. And the world to come is created by the Yod, the world that is the reward for pure service. One who is contemptuous, for he boasts, right? The one who is arrogant impairs the Yod-He. That's much lower. The blemish is far greater than the accomplishment the accomplishment was maximizing my own yudhey my own Mambina, studying torah etc that was what i accomplished what did i what did i harm with my arrogance god's He, which are greater than my yudhey all right whatever without getting into the mechanics i mean whether it makes sense or not fine the point is that the arrogance messes things up far far worse than whatever was accomplished through the 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 the, the, the effort even if, now he goes, now he backtracks a bit, not really, but he goes, even if he has not fallen to the low state of actually boasting, in other words, even if it's not actual pride, arrogance, ego, whatever, but he's still in that first level where he regards himself as satisfaction, he's a little bit smug, so it's not full-blown arrogance and pride, but it's still being satisfied, smug, he is still far worse and lower than the simple man we have discussed. Yeah? Far worse and lower than the simple man. Why? So apart from the substance of what the simple man actually does—praying and reciting Psalms—he performs to the maximum of his of his capabilities. In other words, the simple person, the simple the simple dude, whatever they know, they're doing, right? He knows how to read. He's reading. He knows how to say Psalms. He says Psalms. He knows how to pray. He prays. He knows how to do, what to do does a mitzvah. He's hundred percent. He's doing hundred percent of what he knows. Since he does not understand. What more can he do, right? If if you don't if you if you don't have, if you're not a scholar you're not a scholar. If you don't if you never had the opportunity to study in a yeshiva and a cheder as a kid, whatever it was back in the day, you know you didn't have a chance and there was no like classes later. This is before you know before um, IJA. So then what are you going to do? What 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 do you expect? So he does his best. In addition, his very avoda is by accepting the yoke, as we said before most sublime level of service. Whatever he does is purely because God wants him to do it, not because of his own ego, because he doesn't feel satisfied by what he does. Right? In the daily prayers, Shema, back inside, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven precedes V'ehoyah, the acceptance of the commandments. There's there's three paragraphs of the Shema. In the first paragraph, we talk about accepting the yoke of heaven, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The next paragraph, it talks about doing the mitzvot, V'hayim Shema, follow the mitzvot, follow the commandments. Step one is God. Step two is God, what God wants you to do. But step one is embracing God, is, being, is submitting to Hashem. And then you do what Hashem wants. So this person, this simple, so-called simple person, is very much locked into this accepting the yoke. Is very much locked into this idea of accepting, just submitting to God, not about their own ego. For accepting, back inside, for accepting the heavenly yoke is the foundation and root of Avodah. You can't serve God if, if, if you don't, if, 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 if first and foremost, you don't embrace Hashem. A building rests on its foundation. And accepting the yoke, he keeps on using the word accepting the yoke, that means submitting to Hashem is the foundation of all service. So who has acceptance of the yoke? Who is, who is submitting to God? The arrogant scholar or the simple, uh, the simple, the simple Jew. The answer is the simple Jew. Why? Because the simple Jew, he doesn't have <coughs> the philosophy, the meditation, doesn't have the meaning of the words. Even is doing it simply because that's what's that's what's to be done. Simply because that's what's expected. That's what he's supposed to be doing. That's, there's a purity in that experience. Whereas, let's continue, and we're 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 going to wrap this up in a minute. By self-satisfaction, on the other hand, the other guy, by self-satisfaction, the learned person shows, listen to this, that all his service of God was really serving himself. The whole time, what was he doing? Serving himself. It is precisely like all pleasures and desires that one pursues on his own behalf, like appetites for food, drink, and sleep. In other words, what's different between somebody who runs uh, 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 toward food or one who runs to prayer? If it's all about how it makes me feel, it's the same experience. Does that make sense? This, the person who's running to study Torah because it makes them feel good. Okay, so then it's a taiva. Then it's a then it's a then it's a then it's a, a personal pleasure. Okay. Fine. But it's it's still about yourself, it's not about God. Don't, don't mix God into this. His self satisfaction corrupts the entire worship into personal pleasure and self love, right? It makes it a personal experience, not a divine experience. Not only is this service no service at all because it's not really serving anyone. He impairs his soul and soils himself gravely. And a stain on a precious garment is worse than ordinary ordinary clothing. He adds now another layer. The fact that he knows so much makes all of this worse. He knows so much, and he's still arrogant. He should know better. And so it is understood that what would not be considered a sin or transgression for an ordinary person is criminal for a scholar who studies and worships with tveikot with that type of cleaving. Our sages declare that God is exacting to a hair's breadth with those who surround them. Based on the verses, surroundings are furiously turbulent. Those that are closer, so to speak, there's more, a, there's more of a magnifying glass because you're held to a higher standard. You know more. You're expected to, 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 to be on a, on, a, on a higher level. The fact that you, the fact of the arrogance, that's a greater problem because you should know better. This is logically understood. A common person can do all sorts of improper things simply because he doesn't know or understand. But the scholar knows well enough to beware. Anyone can understand that the punishment for the knowledgeable is far more than for the ignorant. If somebody knows better, of course it's worse. Somebody didn't know better. In addition, there are many acts when performed by a simple man. There are many acts that, when performed by a simple man, do not profane God's name, but when performed by a scholar, become grave offenses. He's just, he's, just add, he's piling on out to the scholar. <laughs> he says, the scholar is worse. You're not serving God, you're serving self. Any small blemish is magnified because you should know better. And you have the potential to cause a, what's the word I'm looking for? A scandal. Because the simple man is not going to cause a scandal. But the, arrogant, but the scholar can cause a scandal. And a scandal is not cool right? The same thing when done by a scholar could become a grave offense. Our sages say, for example, if I take meat from the butcher, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to explain what that means in a second. The same applies regarding matters between man and God. This is what the sages intended with God is exacting with those surrounding him. The closer you are, so to speak, so no one's closer to God than anyone else. But the more you know, the more you should know, the worse it is if, you, if you're doing something wrong. And the more exacting God is because the higher the stakes are because you're expected to act at a certain level. So look at 293, footnote 293. The entire phrase reads, what is an example of profanation of God's name? What does it mean to profane God's name? So listen to this. Rav said, for example, if I take meat from the butcher without paying promptly, for he will call me a thief and learn to pay no attention to robbery. What this means is, Rob says, look, I'm the leader of a community. If I take, I don't know why he would do this, but he wouldn't, obviously. But he's saying if I would do something like take meat, okay. think it's okay, or take it on credit, I'll pay later, but I don't pay right away. Whatever it is, if I do it, beca- exactly. setting a, I'm setting a negative example. That's, so what an ordinary person could do, and it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. But if I do it, it is a big deal. Whatever. I have a good example from this, but it's a little bit grub, so I'm not going to say. It's a little bit, uh, it's not, not refined enough for this, uh, for this conversation, but whatever. Anyway, the, the bottom line is like this. The bottom line is that arrogance is a very dangerous vice. Pride, arrogance, haughty, ha- haughtiness, boasting, or even even more subtly, the sense of self-satisfaction, which is so Subtle. It seems very subtle. That idea of being self-satisfied seems like normal. And it might be. What he's saying here is there's a danger in it. Now, listen, we're not, gonna, we're not perfect. No, don't. Let's not, let's not get uh, illusions of perfection here. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect. But we're at least seeing where the standards are to lie. It's better to be simple, authentic, pure, thinking about God, not too sophisticated, than to be all sort of sophisticated and dig a hole for ourselves spiritually. So in the final analysis, one of the greatest vices, one of the greatest kryptonites to this human spiritual condition is this sense of arrogance and pride and self-satisfaction. It's what digs a pit for us, and it's what can bring us, God forbid, down very low. All of this is going to lead into the next chapter, The next chapter, he clarifies why we're talking about this in the book called Overcoming Folly. And he's going to say, because this constitutes the next folly that we need to be aware of. We're talking about things that trip us up. Overcoming folly means overcoming the things that tear us down, the things that get in our head that make us make mistakes. Well, one major thing that can get in our heads that make us, that take us down is this pride and arrogance. And so as we continue... In chapter, in discourse 16, we'll talk about, we we already talked about the dangers of arrogance. We're going to talk about how to fend off arrogance, humility meditations, and how we can walk even with our accomplishments. We're not saying we shouldn't study Torah, we shouldn't be a scholar, we should do all these things. But how can we remain humble while we have these accomplishments? That is going to be the crux of... Discourse number sixteen: How to remain humble. Yeah. How to remain humble, even while accomplishing a lot. This is going to be very instructive as we continue rolling out this uh, this conversation. All right. Thank you for joining today. I appreciate you being here with me. I hope this was inspiring and also you know keeps us uh, keeps us in check. In a good way, not in a, not in a negative way. This is not, not stirring negative feelings towards self, but only healthy, positive emotions and humility. So a few quick announcements. So this week, we have our brand new meditation series starting Tuesday night and Thursday. Baruch Hashem. We have a very nice response. We have a very nice group, both for the Thursday, both for the uh, Tuesday and the Thursday. Please join us. If you're not yet joined, reach out. And join it's gonna be amazing there are many opportunities to join so if you uh, if you want to join and you need a little bit of encouragement on any level then let me know and we can make it happen please join for that um, also it bears mentioning that this Tuesday like in two days also happens to be my birthday so um, so it's uh, it's a very special day obviously for me personally and this Friday night, in the spirit of my birthday, we're going to be having a Shabbat dinner. Everyone's invited um, right here at IJA on the Beltline. 6.30 is dinner. So if you'd like to join, let me know. and We'd love to have you. So that is this, yeah, in this room right here in Jeff's place. Um, at 6.30, a four-course lavish dinner. And uh, would love to have you. Next announcement is next. So that's this week. We did birthday JLI meditation, birthday dinner. Good. We covered that. Next week, as I mentioned, we have Monday night, the challah baking extravaganza with um, a special guest, challah girl, Atlanta. Sounds like almost like a superhero. Um, And that is (coughs) coming up a week from tomorrow night. What else is going on? I think that might be it for right now. No, there's much more stuff we also have a new event that we're doing on zoom with a uh an incredible tour guide in israel who's going to be taking us on a virtual tour to the hidden secret sites of israel places that even if you were there you couldn't visit taking us behind the scenes into some hidden spots in israel Um, the event is called i think hidden secrets of israel join us the event is free and open to everybody it's a Zoom event, Thursday, February 17th, I believe. Thursday, February 17th. And also for those of you that, uh, that might not have been aware of this, we have postponed the concert event that was supposed to take place a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago. We postponed it to February 20th, which happens to be my English birthday. Not that it's about me, I'm just saying these days are... Happened to mention JLI starting on Tuesday and, and this thing happening on the 20th. But either way, that, th- this is a, a wonderful evening of music and storytelling and dinner, and food. So join us February 20th at 6 p.m. Sunday, February 20th. New date. New, bit of a new experience. That, the way we're conceiving it. Join us for an evening of Hasidic song and inspiration. Okay, I think that's it for right now. That's all that comes to mind. Um, okay. Wishing everybody Tov, and uh, may your favorite team win. Tony, are you a, uh, a San Francisco 49ers? Sorry, yours didn't make it out. Oh no, I, I, so I appreciate. Yeah, thank you. That's that. Those are my feelings. We were speaking about it in show yesterday a little bit. Like, like on the one hand, like you know, oh shame, but like on the other hand, like I mean, kind of knew that was gonna happen. I, I didn't have any. I don't think anybody had any fantasies of that actually going any differently than it went it would have been nice but like it just kind of got lucky to get there in the first place but yeah i think the way we landed the conversation yesterday it was a few of us speaking was like it's probably in case there were any thoughts of oh maybe one more round that was a good way of being no 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 we're good we're good we're, we'll, we'll end it now it's it was a good run while well, it lasted that's it anyway
1: Rabbi, do you have any texts of Overcoming Folly and then the, also the, uh, the Parsha text, weekly
0: Parsha text? Overcoming yeah. Folly, you mean like the book? Yes. You can, the book is available. If you want to, I would highly recommend if you want the book, get the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's available. Oh, look, Michael's got it. Yeah, um, the book is available Amazon. on
1: Amazon. Amazon. Available on Amazon, yeah,
0: Amazon, the Kahat website. Yeah, it's available. It wasn't when we started this. It wasn't available when we started this. I think this is number forty-seven, so it's been over a year now. When we started it, the book was out of print, but yeah, I got my connection, so I uh, we got we got it back in print. So it's back in print. So it's definitely available. And the parsha, the the text for the parsha. Um, you mean the chumash that we use here in Shul?
1: Uh, I don't know. Is there no, the, the partial
0: oh, class? There's, there's oh, there. the Wednesday night. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah the Wednesday night Torah studies. That okay. is also available on Amazon. Yeah. Um, if you, best thing would be to send me an email and I'll send you the link. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll send you the. And if anybody wants it, just send me an email, I'll send you the link directly. You can just get an Amazon Prime delivery. You get it in a few days. Boom. All right. We'll see everybody. Have a wonderful week. Shavuotov, Tov. Lots of blessings. Lots Shavua of love. Tov. See everybody. Take care. Thanks. <laughs> used to wave it. Not, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing.